Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing in our series in uh, Mishle, the book of Proverbs. Uh, today's part four. We're going to look today at how to get wisdom. So turn me to Proverbs chapter 3. We're going to be looking through the, most of the first half of Proverbs chapter 3, verses 1 to 12. My son, don't forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they'll prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Then you'll win favor and a good name in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he'll direct your paths. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline and don't resent his rebuke. For the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father, the son, he delights in. Amen. We live in a culture in which there are now more choices than there's ever been. Uh, And what you need uh, to make good choices is wisdom. And wisdom is what the book of Proverbs is all about. Now, biblical moral values is extremely important, uh, but wisdom is knowing what to do in the 80% of life situations in which the moral rules do not give you an answer. So for example, you might have two different career paths, two, two different choices. Both are morally acceptable, neither is immoral or sinful, and that one of them fits you and one of them doesn't. And if you make a wrong choice, you can waste an enormous amount of your time and other people's time as well. If you make a bad choice because you're out of touch with reality, such as out of touch with the reality of what this job really entails, or out of touch with the reality of who you really are, it's a huge difficulty. And it could take years uh, to get your life back on track, even though you're a morally good person. So even though there's nothing morally wrong in your decision that you make, you can still make poor choices. So what is wisdom? Wisdom is competence with regard to the realities of life, how life really works. So how do you get wisdom? That's what we're going to look at today, focusing on this chapter 3 of, of the book of Proverbs. And we have it on the overhead here. We're going to learn three things. Uh, one, number one, where wisdom develops. Number two, the vehicles through which wisdom develops. And number three, the catalyst that sparks and fuels them all. So first, where does wisdom develop? It doesn't happen in a classroom or or in a seminar. You can get knowledge there, but not wisdom. So where do you get wisdom? There's a metaphor about this all through the book of Proverbs. We see it in Proverbs 3, verse 6 on the overhead, where it says, Do these things, and he'll make your path straight. The Hebrew here is yashar, uh, straight, upright, uh, smooth. Now, what does this mean as a metaphor? Uh, The Lord will make your paths straight. It means he'll make your life go well. Your life is being likened here to a pathway. uh, And and living your life is being likened to walking 
on a path. Now, this metaphor actually says a lot uh, because walking on a path means doing things very steadily. Uh, if you jump or, or somersault or, or run, depending on who you are, uh, you may not get very far in the long term. Uh, but everyone can walk. Uh, you walk a lot farther, actually, than you can run. Uh, and that's tr true even for athletes. You can walk farther than you can run. And so the best way for you to make long-term progress on this path is something very simple, uh, very rhythmic. It's called walking. <laughs> and if you follow the path, it takes you somewhere. You don't stay where you are. Now, why is this a metaphor for life? Because the actions you take repeatedly, day after day, the ordinary daily activities of life make you something. You cannot stay the same. The way in which you behave, the actions you engage in, the choices you make in just ordinary daily life are slowly but surely turning you into something. They're turning you into either a wise person or a foolish person. Because these behaviors and actions and choices are developing your character in one direction or another. Your character is being forged in the small parts of daily life. No one brings this out better than, than my favorite, C.S. Lewis. He says that every day you make little decisions, uh, and, and as you do that, you're putting a mark on your soul, uh, a little twist on your soul. And slowly, through the little things you do, uh, the actions and the choices you're making in the ordinary daily life are either making you more like the angels or more like the demons. And C.S. Lewis, he gives this example in his famous book, Mere Christianity. Uh, here's what he says. He says, imagine one day you read in the newspaper a story about a group of people uh, in a political party that you don't like. And the story is about a big potential scandal whereby these people have acted very badly. And there's going to be this big scandal. It's going to blow up in their faces, and they'll probably be thrown out of power. Now, you don't like these people or, or their party, so as you're reading the story, you're enjoying it very much. <laughs> you say, I never liked these people's positions or their politics, and now it's exposed that in addition, they're also really nasty people. They'll probably be, be turned out of office, and isn't that great? But then what if a week later, you read another story in the same newspaper that says, hey, by the way, that prior story was all wrong, turns out to be false. Uh, we got it all wrong, and there's nothing to that prior story. We, we retract it. Now, at this point, C.S. Lewis says, you have a choice to make. You could say, oh, thank God, that person is not as bad as I thought he was. Or you can be very disappointed. <laughs> and the overhead, C.S. Lewis writes this. You could either decide, I guess I was wrong. The person really isn't that bad. Or you can be disappointed and say, I really wanted to think that they were that bad. Now, here's what he goes on. C.S. Lewis goes on to say, if you go with the first feeling, that thankfully they're not so bad, that's one thing. But if you go with the second feeling of disappointment and the determination to hold on to that first story for the sheer pleasure of thinking your enemy is as bad as you'd like them to be, if you do that, he writes, I'm afraid it's the first step in a process which, if followed to the end, will make you into a devil. You say, uh, you be, because you're beginning to wish that, that something black was just, just a little bit blacker than it really is. 
And if you, go in, if you give in to that wish, later on you wish to see or, or gray as really being black. And eventually you start to see white as being black. And finally you'll be fixed forever in a universe of pure hatred. Because remember, we Yeshua followers, we believe that the soul lives forever. And so what really matters are the little marks or, or twists on the inside part of your soul, which will eventually turn it in the long run into either a heavenly or a hellish creature. Wow. Do you hear what he's saying? When you don't like someone, you hear something bad about them, but then you later find out it is not true, but you insist on saying, but I want to think that they're really that bad. <laughs> so I'm going to believe they're that bad. Anyways, what have you done? Because of your resentment and your animosity, because of your grumpiness and your unhappiness, you're choosing to believe something that you know is not true. Because you want to believe it. And that means you're just a little bit more foolish than you were a moment ago. Because you're out of touch with reality. Uh, on the overhead, think of these three sets of opposing character traits. Uh, humility versus pride. Uh, courage versus cowardice. Uh, grace and forgiveness versus anger and bitterness. Now, if you're angry and resentful, you want to believe the person is that bad, even if they're not. Uh, so what you're going to do is if you see something or, or think you see something that confirms your prejudice, you're going to grab onto that. And if you see something that shows the person isn't as bad as you think they are, you're going to ignore that because you're out of touch with reality. You're creating a scenario in your mind of what that person is like that isn't true. And you're going to make bad choices because wisdom is competence with regard to reality. Wisdom is making choices based on the realities of life. Not what you think is real or what you want to be real, but what really is real. So if you're a coward or if you're proud, you're not going to want to take any, anyone's advice. Uh, you want to think that you know, your feelings uh, uh, and, and your opinions are the right ones. But don't you see it's the little things in, in, in the everyday life that can either make you more resentful, uh, more cowardly, more proud, or more loving, more forgiving, more courageous. And the stronger your character, the wiser you will be. Because you'll be more in touch with reality of, of what things really are. In daily life, your little choices, if godly choices, will, will grow to give you good character. Uh, and that good character will then enable you to make wise choices in life. Because life is a path. So on the overhead. So it's in the ordinary daily life that wisdom is either lost or gained. Bit by bit by bit, one foot after the other, gradual development over time by faithful obedience to God and his word. And little things as well as big. So that's point number one, where wisdom develops. On the overhead here, uh, point number two, the vehicles through which wisdom develops. That is, uh, how can you set things up so you're making good choices and you're moving down the path towards wisdom instead of foolishness? There's four things this text tells us about. Four things that if you do them, they'll enable you to make those choices in daily life that will develop your character of, of humility uh, and courage and grace that will give you the ability to make wise choices uh, in key decisions in life. So, how do you get that character? 
uh, on the overhead. If in daily life you do these four things, knowing God, trusting God, submitting to God's word, and four, living in community. So first, knowing God. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 3. Let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. On the surface, this simply says, be a loving, faithful person. What does this phrase, let love and faithfulness never leave you, what does that really mean? The Hebrew here is chesed, loving kindness, mercy, uh, and emet, truth, faithfulness. This is talking about faithful covenant love, loyal love, faithfulness. We're told to bind it around our neck, that's the outward, and to write it on the tablets of our heart, that's the inward. It's saying, don't let it ever leave you. Don't let go of it. Don't ever lose your grip on it. Notice that these two Hebrew words, they, they describe God's covenant love for his people. The first word, chesed, refers to God's unconditional love for his people. It describes God's commitment, his faithfulness, his graciousness, that he is unconditionally committed to you. So when it says, let God's love and faithfulness never leave you, hold on to them, bind them around your neck, write them upon the tablets of your heart, talk about them all the time, here's what it's saying. It's saying, you need to be absolutely convinced of and never lose your grasp of God's unconditional, gracious love for you. We need to really know in your heart of hearts that he's for you, that Yeshua made the ultimate sacrifice for you, that if you make him Lord of your life, he is unconditionally committed to you. Now, why does this create wisdom? Think about it. If you really had that deep assurance, if you really knew Messiah's love and commitment and acceptance of you, this would give you a supernatural poise. Uh, you'd never panic. Uh, you'd make wise choices because uh, you'd never be fearful or, or untrusting or anxious or doubting of the Lord. Well, how do you do that? Look at Proverbs 3, verse 3 again. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablets of your heart. One thing this refers to is your prayer life. Take an abstract idea and now make it real to your heart through prayer. Daily. Multiple times a day. The Hebrew word faithfulness here is the word emet, truth. Find God, bind God's truth around your neck. Write it on your heart. This refers to studying God's word, meditating on it, memorizing it, and on the overhead. In some, to know the Lord, you must have a vigorous spiritual life in which you're actively walking with Yeshua. You're praying and reading uh, and talking to him, uh, singing to him, worshiping him. You're practicing his presence and reminding yourself of what he's done for me. So the first way to build up your character of wisdom is to know God, daily knowing God, practicing his presence every day. This is the first character trait that's going to enable you to make wise choices, choices that develop wisdom in you over time. Second, uh, trusting God. Look at the, on the overhead, Proverbs 3, verse 5. Famous, famous verse. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Now, 
hear me well, it's very possible for you to believe in God, uh, to even obey God and, and to pray to God, but to give the functional trust of your heart to something else. It's possible to believe God, but to trust something else for your real significance, uh, for your real security. So, for example, uh, yes, I believe in God, and, and I go to shul, and I, and I even obey the Ten Commandments, and, and I pray, but maybe my career is the real functional trust of my heart. It's what you trust in, what you rely upon for your significance, uh, for your security, for your identity, for your self-worth and your, your self-esteem. Now, of course, you're often in denial about this. You won't admit it until something goes wrong with your career. Then it becomes obvious what you're really trusting in. Now, here's the problem. Anything you make, the functional trust of your heart, it, whether it's your beauty, uh, your athleticism, uh, your talent, your intelligence, your popularity, uh, your power, uh, your political views, uh, your career, your wealth, uh, a romantic relationship, your family, your kids, your spouse, anything you make, the functional trust of your heart, there's always going to be inordinate emotions around these things. So if something goes wrong with your career, uh, yes, of course, you're going to be upset. Uh, it's awful. It's terrible. But, it, but if it's your trust, you'll be devastated. Uh, you'll be emotionally debilitated. Uh, you won't be able to function. There are enormous emotions around those things that you make your functional trust rather than God. And it clouds your judgment and it makes you unable to be wise. So in the overhead, number one is knowing God, and number two is really trusting him. Number three, submitting to God's word. Proverbs 3, verse 5. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Now, the actual Hebrew here for the word acknowledge is the verb yada, to know, which means experiential knowing. In all your ways know the Lord is what the literal Hebrew says meaning have an intimate relationship with him. Submit to his lordship. To know him is to obey him. The writer of Proverbs here is calling for a life of trust and obedience uh, in which you see the Lord in every event in your life and rely on him. Uh, to acknowledge the Lord in every event means trusting and obeying him for guidance and conduct and submitting to his word. This verse says, although you may have a particular understanding or opinion or belief, you need to follow God's understanding and submit to him and, and his will, not your own. And so immersing yourself in God's word and leaning not on your own understanding and doing God's will and not your own, it's learn, it's lean, that's leaning on his, not your own, but his understanding. Now, how does immersing yourself in the Bible and plunging yourself in, learning it, mastering it, memorizing it, reading it daily, listening to it, uh, studying it, meditating on it, discussing it with others, how does all that turn you into someone who's wise? There's both a simple way and a complex way. Here's first the simple way. There's lots of rules in the Bible, right? Uh, moral categories, uh, absolutes. So, for example, what if you're married, you're married, uh, and your marriage is not going well, and you have an opportunity for an extramarital affair? An actual offer is on the table, and you're wrestling, do I want to do this or not? Well, the Bible is very clear here. 
there's no ambiguity. <laughs> the Bible says, no, never. It's even one of the big 10, right? Exodus 20, verse 24, verse 14, uh, the overhead. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You're married. You may be for a vow before God and your spouse. No adultery. Your lawfully wedded spouse, your wife or husband, must be your exclusive sexual partner. So it's very simple. You don't have to pray about it. <laughs> Lord, should I have this affair or not? No, there's nothing to pray about. <laughs> the Bible's very clear. And 20% of your life's decisions are like this. The Bible has some nice, clear, definitive instructions. Now, you may not like what it says. Oh, I'm going to bear it bad. I'm in a bad marriage, you say. I don't understand this rule. But it says, don't lean on your own understanding. So maybe you don't like it or you find it difficult to understand. But there it is. Very clear. So how do you let God's understanding trump your own so that you grow in wisdom? One vital way is simply by submitting to God's word. That's the simple way. There's also a more complex way. In the 80% of times where the Bible doesn't give you a clear black and white. Alistair McIntyre, in his book, uh, After Virtue, gives an illustration that brings this out. Now imagine you're standing at a bus stop. Uh, and a young man you've never met in your life uh, runs up to you and says, the Latin name for the common wild duck is Historianicus, Historianicus, Historianicus. And then he runs away. How do you make sense of that? Why did this happen? Well, McIntyre says there's, there's only one way to make sense of it, and that is you have to put it in a narrative. You have to ask, what is the story in which this incident makes sense? And it can't make any sense unless you stick it into a story. He suggests three possible stories. Of course, there's infinitely more, but he focuses on these three. The first story is that the man is simply mentally ill. <laughs> uh, he's not right in the head. Uh, and of course, this would make sense of his strange outburst, a likely scenario. The second possibility is that this is a story of mistaken identity. Several days ago, when this young man was in the, in the library, he was trying to look up this book about the common wild duck, uh, and he talked to the librarian, and you happen to look like the librarian. So he sees you at the bus stop, and he thinks you're the librarian, and he says, hey, I finally found the book I was looking for, and here's what it says. The second option, a bit less likely, but possible. The third story is that this man is a spy. And he's mistaken you for his contact. And he's giving you the secret code word. <laughs> now, I'm not very likely, but, but possible. But here's McIntyre's point. What, happens to make, what happened makes no sense unless you, unless you stick it into a narrative. Uh, and the narrative you put it in completely determines how you're going to respond to it. And obviously, you were going to respond in very different ways depending on whether this person is mentally, mentally ill or a case of mistaken identity or a spy. <laughs> now, think of your money. How do you look at it? How do you treat it? How do you act towards it? What do you do with it? Do you realize it all depends on what you think the story of the world is? If you accept the secular idea that there, there's no God, we're here by accident, uh, then when we die, we just rot, and eventually when the sun dies, there'll be no one left around to even remember anything that anyone's ever done. 
If that's your worldview, then the only happiness you will ever have is the happiness you have right here and now. So how are you going to treat your money? You treat it as if it's your ultimate source of happiness and worth and security and self-image. But what if the story of the world is very different? What if we were all created by God? And so that absolutely everything we have is a gift from him. And what if also this world has fallen? Uh, but God has come into our world to redeem it. Uh, and someday he's going to renew it. And we're going to live eternally after we die. What if this life is not your only life? What if this life is a very small part of your entire life? Your life on earth is just a small part of your entire existence. Now, in that story, not only does your money look very different now, but everything looks different. It all depends on the, what story you put it in. And this is how you make wise decisions in the complex situations in the 80% of the time when there's no clear black and white biblical directive on the overhead. You must analyze your situation and make decisions in light of eternity. In light of the, of the larger story that your life on earth is simply one small part of. In light of all that God has in store for you for all eternity, what's the decision now that best fits into this overall plan and is most consistent with this big picture of advancing God's kingdom and my place in it? So, for example, when people ask me, and they ask me all the time, <laughs> how much money do I need to give uh, to tithe in order to uh, always be, uh, to give away in order to stay in God's good graces? You know, to obey God and have God pleased with me, how much do I need to give away? They're looking, of course, for, for a bright line rule, like, you know, like thou shalt not commit adultery, something very black and white. Uh, they're looking for a rule that says thou must give, for example, 10% of your gross income to the shul. That's what they're looking for. So you're looking for a rule, but what if the Bible gives you a story? A story that's so different from the world story that it's going to actually make you generous. It's going to actually make you far, far, far more generous. You see, when you, when you read not just the rules of the Bible, but the narratives uh, and the history and the poetry and the prophecy, and you read it all, and you immerse yourself in it, every part of your life will begin to look different. And therefore, how you live will be different. And wisdom grows out of that. It's not simply, you know, just tell me how much I have to tithe. Uh, what's the rule? Uh, how much do I have to give away? But the more you immerse yourself in God's word, the more you become wise. Do you see that? Because everything looks different once you place yourself within the story that the Bible tells us about the world. So here are the vehicles you need in order to develop wisdom in daily life on the overhead. Um, number one, knowing God. Number two, trusting God. Number three, submitting to his word in both the 20% of simple things and the 80% of complex things. And then number four, living in community. Look at Proverbs 3, verse 7. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Now, the definition of a fool is someone who's wise in his or her own eyes. A fool is someone who only cares to see things from their own perspective. 
Now, for example, since I'm up here on the stage uh, and I'm looking out, I can see things that you can't <laughs> because I've got this unique perspective. And by the same token, you can see things that I can't that are right around your chair that I can't see very well. So to really know what's happening in this entire room, it takes all of our joint perspectives. The definition of a fool is someone who only sees things through their own eyes. A fool says, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I see it the way I see it. The definition of wisdom, in contrast, is to see things through as many eyes as possible. There's wisdom in the counsel of many. Through, the, through God's eyes, through his word, through your friend's eyes, through others' eyes. On the overhead, the picture of wisdom in the book of Proverbs is a person who has created a community of counselors to surround him and advise him over the years. Mentors, counselors, spiritual leaders, friends, other people that you always check with. But we, by contrast, live in the most hyper-individualistic society in the history of the world. We're taught, you make your own decisions. Uh, you make your own call. Uh, you should not be accountable to anybody. You shouldn't let anyone else have any input or impact or voice on your path. You know, as Billy Joel famously said, this is my life. <laughs> yes, it's your, it's your life, but you can't see it all. You don't see all the perspectives and all the consequences and all the impacts of your decisions. You're not an island. You're not a lone wolf. You cannot see yourself fully. We don't, we don't even know what we really look like or sound like to others. So, for example, when I listen to a recording of myself, I say, who's that awful sounding person? <laughs> I don't sound like that, do I? And everybody says, yeah, that's you. <laughs> or look at a picture of myself. I say, who's that old bald guy? And then I realize, oh, that's me. <laughs> you, see, you see, others can see and hear you better than you can see and hear yourself. So only if you're deeply involved in community can you be wise. Not the overhead. You need these four vehicles to develop wisdom. Knowing God, trusting God, submitting to his word, being in community. And then the overhead. So number one, we've looked at how, where wisdom develops. And now we just finally looked, we looked at the vehicles through which it develops. Now finally... What is the catalyst that sparks or fuels and allows all these vehicles to take off uh, and run turbocharged? There's something that when it happens, make all these things produce wisdom uh, at 10 times the normal rate. Do you know what that is? You'll be surprised at the answer. <laughs> Look at Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. My son, don't despise the Lord's discipline uh, and don't resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father the son he delights in. The image here is of a father disciplining his son. The father brings into his son's life uh, necessary but painful things. Things that are hard, things that are difficult, things that are painful. Things that make the child cry. Here's what's so surprising about these verses being here in this context, chapter 3. Because the first 10 verses of chapter 3 basically say, do this and this, and you'll have peace and prosperity. So look, for example, at verses 1 and 2, chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. My son, don't forget my teaching. Keep my commands in your heart. 
Now, they'll prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. Then the next verses, verses 3 and 4, says, do this and this, and you have favor and a good name. And then verses 5 and 6, do this and this, you have straight paths. Verses 7 and 8, do this and this, and it will result in health in your body and nourishment to your bones. Verses 9 and 10, do this and this, your barns will be filled and your vats are brimming with new wine. And then you get to verses 11 and 12. And the text says, nevertheless, you will receive discipline and rebuke. So all these verses here, they're completely, these last two verses are completely unexpected uh, in the context. All these great promises in verses 1 through 10. And then suddenly, oh, oh, by the way, bad things are also going to happen to you. (laughs) And God's going to let them happen uh, for you, for your your own ultimate good. So what does this mean? Well, at the most basic level, first of all, it's saying you can do everything right and bad things can still happen to you. You can be moral, you can be decent, you can be charitable and work hard and submit to God and still have bad things happen to you. And if you don't believe that, if you don't know that, you are not ready for life. You're, acting, you're actually foolish uh, because you're out of touch with reality. Reality is you can lead a good life and still have terrible things happen to you. And many young people especially do not believe this. And if they see someone's light blow up, they say, oh, he probably did something wrong. And of course, I'll never do that. That's very self-justifying. That's being wise in your own eyes. And that's setting you up for disappointment. Because if you believe that people whose lives blow up have always done something wrong, you don't know how life works. That's being foolish. So bad things may happen to you despite how good you are. But verses 11 and 12, they're also telling us something else. Because this is a chapter on how to become wise. These are things that have to happen. It's laid out in verses 1 to 12 in order for you to become wise. And this is saying no one ever really becomes wise without first experiencing the Lord's discipline and rebuke. Now, we modern Western people, we don't see any redeeming features in suffering. It's just seen as a total disaster. But almost every other culture and every other religion in the history of the world, have always understood this, that if you don't suffer, you will not be wise. You will be a shallow person. People who live charmed lives, people who have always had everything go well for them, are shallow people. And virtually everyone who's wise says, I learn the most through my mistakes and my failures and through bad things happening to me. Do you want to really know yourself? Do you want to really know who you are? Your strengths and your weaknesses? This only happens if you're tested and when you're tested. Do you want to be good at helping hurting people? Uh, Skillful and compassionate at helping suffering people? That's only going to happen if you have been through it yourself. Otherwise, you won't know what to do. You'll be clueless. And you may end up even making things worse uh, if you try to help. On the overhead, do you want to be absolutely sure that you can trust God, that he's there for you, so sure that nothing unsettles you or rattles you? Often, you don't really learn to trust God at this level until you're drowning 
You don't come to see that Yeshua is all you need, you need until Yeshua is all you have. But when you realize this, you will see that suffering turbocharges everything else in your life. And it's not until you suffer that you end up knowing God on a whole new level. Like, for example, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, or Pastor Richard Wurmbrand. Your prayer life rises to a whole new level. You're totally trusting God instead of the things you're used to trust in, which have now blown up on you. It's only through suffering that you really get into the Word of God and really get into the need to seek community we're, because we're, very, we're typically very independent people. We don't like relying on others until suffering happens. And then suddenly we realize how much we need people. Of course, we've always needed people to help us grow spiritually and to be wise. But it wasn't until we were suffering that we re began to realize it. Because suffering turbocharges all these other things that move you toward wisdom. But here's the catch. Suffering does not automatically do that. Because the, things, the thing you need to be wise and make good choices is character. You need to become humble, not proud, courageous, not cowardly, gracious and forgiving, not angry and resentful. But the problem is this. Suffering can also make you proud and, and arrogant and hard and cold. Suffering can make you a coward and broken. Suffering can make you angry and resentful and bitter and judgmental. In other words, suffering can either propel you towards wisdom and greater humility and dependence on Yeshua, or can propel you towards foolishness uh, and inward focus and self-centeredness and the overhead. Why? What is the key? Suffering is inevitable, and it's either going to make you wiser or stupider. <laughs> so how are you going to make sure it makes you wiser? Here's the key. The key is you have to believe that God delights in you even when suffering happens. Proverbs 3, verse 12. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. As a father of the son, he delights in. In child discipline, if a father really loves his son, he's letting the bad things come into his child's life as part of discipline. Now, he's not doing it to condemn the child or to hurt the child, although it hurts him to see the child cry. But he's doing it to grow up the child. You have to be absolutely sure that God loves you and delights in you when bad things happen, or else suffering will just harden you and make you cold. Uh, it'll make you uh, despondent. It'll make you turn from God, uh, turn from life. It'll make you arrogant and insufferable. And the overhead, you've got to believe that Yeshua delights in you. If you're going to have suffering, soften you and make you wiser instead of harden you and make you foolish. So, so how can we be sure? These two verses in Proverbs, 11, uh, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, they're quoted, by the way, uh, in the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 12, verse 5 and 6. The book of Hebrews quotes this verse from Proverbs. It says, my son, don't make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens everyone he accepts as a son. But it's just before this, a couple of verses before this, Hebrews 12, verse 2, says this. Let us fix our eyes on Yeshua, the author and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand 
of the throne of God. And there it is. How can you be sure that you're a child of God? That if you're a child of God, that he delights in you when, he, when, you, when, you, when you go through suffering? How can you? Uh, you can because you see what Yeshua did for you. When Yeshua was immersed in the, in the Jordan, the Spirit came down upon him. God's voice boomed out from heaven, saying this in Matthew 3, 17. This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased, in whom I delight. And all through his life, whenever Yeshua turned to God, he always said, Father, Father, Father. For example, how should we pray? Pray like this, our Father who's in heaven. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, Abba, Father. Always Father, whenever he talks to God, his Father. Except on the cross. Where instead he cries out, my God, my God. Why doesn't he call him Father there? Because Yeshua is at that point being expelled. He's being rejected, forsaken. He's getting what you and I deserve. So that when we repent and trust in him, our sins can be forgiven. John 1 verse 12. Those who received him, even those who believed on his name, he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God. If Yeshua is truly the Lord of your life, you are adopted. You are brought in. Yeshua lost his sonship so that you could become a son, a child of God. Romans 8, 16. The Spirit himself testifies in our spirit that we are God's children. What does that mean? It means that because Yeshua died on the cross and took our punishment, we can know that now he is pleased with us. And sometimes the Spirit will come in and speak to your heart directly and tell you, you are my beloved child in whom I'm well pleased. That will re-narrate your soul. It will re-narrate your world. That story. You put anything into that story, into the gospel, and it turns to gold. How can you really know in your heart of hearts that Messiah loves you? Only because he went to the cross and laid down his life for you. How can I trust in uh, God in suffering if he's never suffered? But he has. On the cross. That's the gospel. And Messianic faith, Yeshua faith, is the only religion on the face of the earth that says that God has suffered. And if he suffered like that for me, that I can trust him in my far smaller, far lesser suffering. I can know he delights in me. Otherwise, he never would have gone to the cross and the overhead. And therefore, when you rest in Yeshua and see what he's done for you, you'll find that your troubles now relate to your heart the way that fire relates to gold. It refines it. It makes it more precious and pure and glorious. Your suffering will make you into something great and turbocharge your spiritual growth. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I'll leave the music team to come up, please. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Father, we want to be wise with godly wisdom. We want to become more and more like you, Yeshua, in whom all the treasures of knowledge and wisdom are hid. Yeshua, help me to make wise, godly choices and even the little everyday decisions of life. 
which develop my character over time, make me more and more like you. Help me, Lord, to trust in you and lean not on my own understanding, but in all my ways acknowledge you. And you promise to direct my paths. Lord, help me to look to what Yeshua did for me on the cross. And seeing that, that we know that you, Yeshua, you delight in us. So we can go through the ups and downs of life, knowing you, Yeshua, trusting in you, submitting to your word, living in community with our Messianic brothers and sisters, becoming more and more conformed to your image. In order, in order to be conformed to your image, Lord, I know this requires sometimes discipline uh, and rebuke. And it shows me that, you, that that discipline and rebuke, it shows me you love me and you care about me. You want me to grow. And sometimes it requires Yeshua, you showing me that you're all I need because you're all I have. And that suffering, Lord, you promise will turbocharge my spiritual growth. So, Lord Yeshua, help me to know that you delight in me especially in the midst of my suffering. For you discipline those you love. And I know you love me because you proved it on the cross. You, Lord, suffer for me that I might become your child, the child of God. Thank you, Yeshua. In your name I pray. Amen. Shabbat shalom.